Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Even if you've never seen horseshoe crabs, you've definitely benefited from them. These creatures have been around for more than 300 million years, making them even older than dinosaurs. Amazing, right? Even more amazing? Horseshoe crabs are instrumental in protecting against dangerous bacteria and in the creation of the COVID-19 vaccine. But these living fossils are now threatened by over-harvesting. What happens if we lose horseshoe crabs as a valuable resource? Author William Bill Sargent is a consultant for the Nova Science series and the author of 27 books, including Crab Wars, a tale of horseshoe crabs, ecology, and human health. And he joins me now. Welcome to Under the Radar, Bill. Thank you very much, Callie. I'm, I'm a great fan of yours, and I've never done a Langyap, if I pronounce that right. <laughs> it's Langyap, <laughs> but that's great. <laughs> well, I'm delighted to have you, and I feel so ashamed to talk to someone with your great credentials from NOVA to let you know that I'm not a very outdoorsy person. So when I got your book and I started reading about horseshoe crabs, in my mind, I was really thinking about what I now understand were hermit crabs, those little tiny ones that run around and hide. Uh, so I think it's important uh, to begin with your description of what a horseshoe crab looks like. That's a great beginning. They, they look very much like a helmet. They look like something that Steven Spielberg might have designed. They're up, up here uh, on Cape Cod. They're about the size of your outstretched uh, hand. And sometimes if you pick up what, what you think is a dead horseshoe crab, if you flip it over, if you see a crack along the leading edge of the shell, that's where the horseshoe crab has crawled out and left that empty shell behind. So you're not actually seeing, uh, seeing a, 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 a dead horseshoe crab. Um, now, the other thing that's of interest about horseshoe crabs are their eyes. They actually have nine eyes in all. So they have two compound eyes on either side, and then they have a series of vestigial eyes underneath their shell, and they even have one at the, at the very edge of the tail. And there was a Dr. H. Keffer Hartline who won the Nobel Prize in 1967 for his research on the optic nerve that runs from those compound eyes to the brain, and the brain actually lies in a circle around their mouths. So these guys actually eat through their brains, if you will. I don't know if you've ever done that. I do that about three times a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they're pretty interesting. When you when you finally get an image of you know what what they actually look at look like, for one thing, they're larger than you think. Um, so you're exactly right. They look just like helmets. Let me go back uh, because you have not only a scientific interest in it, but a personal interest. And let's talk about how you first became interested in horseshoe crabs. Well, I, I grew up in the summers on Cape Cod, uh, and I had a I had a little flat bottom boat that my my father had built, uh, especially for cruising around the marshes and creeks of, of Pleasant Bay. 
And what I used to love to do uh, would go out under a full moon high tide in April, May, June, and a little bit in July. And I'd go out to the outer beach uh, and the only light would be coming from the full moon. Uh, everything was quiet. You might hear a quiet lapping of the, of the uh, waves along the shore. And then all of a sudden you would start seeing these dark forms coming up out of the sediments and coming up right up to the edge of the, of the beach. And then the female will dig down into the sand and start laying her eggs. And each female will be surrounded with about a dozen, dozen lascivious male crabs who are all trying to get under her shell and, and be the first one to be the first ones to fertilize the eggs. Uh, so it gives you an incredible feeling of, of creation because this was going on for, you know, 450 million years. So, so basically when horseshoe crabs first, coming, first came up on land, all that there were on land were little mosses and ferns uh, and a few uh, insects like, like um, dragonflies with about a three foot long wingspan. Uh, so they're very, very ancient animals. And it's because of their ancient heritage that they're so important to us now. Uh, because the other thing that scientists are interested in horseshoe crabs is their blood. Right. Before you go there, though, I, I'm going to get there in just a second. I just want to pause you because something that uh, I learned in your book was the fact that initially scientists thought that they made it because of pheromones. We've Those of us have heard about that that's in perfume. It's the thing that... Uh, often animals give off as a scent to attract a mate and cause mating. But in fact, going back to the eyes, that's not what was happening. And you have a very funny story in your book about that. Yeah, there was, I was sort of right in the midst of the, of the pheromone vision debate. And I ended up on the, on the wrong side of the, uh, I was in the wrong camp, if you will. It was actually at the time when E.O. Wilson, who recently died, was studying pheromones in ants. And all of a sudden, people realized that pheromones were very important for, for animal behavior. And I figured, well, aha, you know, that they're probably uh, what's triggering uh, the mating behavior of horseshoe crabs. Quite often, if a female is laying her eggs upstream, um, it, so she'll be about maybe six feet uh, upstream, and then if a male crab is is cruising along downstream from her, and there's just a, there's a you know a slight current going by, as soon as he gets immediately downstream, he turns 90 degrees and and goes right up to where she's laying her eggs. So it looks like there's pheromones or something in the water that's leading them up there. But there was a student of H. Keffer Heartlines called Bob Barlow, and he actually put cameras on horseshoe crabs. And then he put out models of horseshoe crabs, and he found that, in fact, they would go to the darkest models that would be closest to uh, what a female horseshoe crab looked like. So the, uh, the vision people won that argument, but I still kind of think it might be both ways. <laughs> <laughs> well, now let's get to why you wrote a whole book about them and why scientists and medicine have long treasured them, actually, because they're very important. If you will, there are, there are a different kind of blue bloods. We think of blue bloods in this country as noble and fancy and rich. Um, but uh, in fact, crabs have blue blood, and it's very, very powerful in its impact. Describe. Absolutely. Yes, they have this very rich cobalt blue blood. 
And what scientists found that they could do is they could extract that blood and make what's called limulus amoebocyte lysate. If we have a wound, we have a whole series of antibodies that go to the area and fight the infection. What horseshoe crabs have is a, are, is a single kind of what are called amoebocyte cells, and they look like an amoeba. And what they'll simply do is go to an area and coagulate and keep the infection out. So what scientists are able to do is extract that blood, and then they will put those cells into fresh water, and the cells will break open, and then they will freeze dry that so that you get a little white powder. And then that white powder, when you want to test anything that's going to come in, in contact with the human blood system, whether it's a, a syringe or a vaccine or a pacemaker, all has to be tested to make sure they're free of, of gram-negative bacteria. And the way they do that is, is with, the, with the horseshoe crab blood. Let's uh let's underscore what you just said with this clip from Business Insider. Um, they are talking about just how important that extraction is. When LAL was approved for use in 1970, it changed everything. Drop a minuscule amount of it onto a medical device or vaccine, and the LAL will encase any gram-negative bacteria in a jelly cocoon. While it can't kill the bacteria, the jelly seal is like a fire alarm alerting us to the presence of what could become a potentially lethal infection and prevent it from spreading. Now, I wanted to underscore what you said with that clip because the next part people need to understand, you know, why it's so incredibly important that we have this as an option, the blue blood. Because before Bill Sargent, the only way for scientists to test to make sure that there were not bacteria that could be harmful to humans was what? It's pretty gruesome. Uh, well, what, what they would do is all the pharmaceutical companies would have large colonies of, of live rabbits. So they might have seven or 800 live rabbits. And if they were developing a vaccine, they would take some of that vaccine and inject it into a rabbit. And if the rabbit kicked over and died, they knew that it was uh, contaminated with, with bacteria. This became very important uh, in 1976 when President Ford was in office and all of a sudden a recruit came down with what, what everybody thought was swine flu. This was in Fort Dix, New Jersey, and everybody went on high alert. They thought we were going to have this, this swine flu similar to the Spanish flu that was going to decimate the country. And President Ford wanted to prove he could do something other than, than pardon President Nixon. So he set up a program to inoculate every man, woman, and child against swine flu. And what happened? Nothing. <laughs> the swine flu never developed. It was only that single recruit that, that ever came down with it. But thousands and thousands of people were inoculated, and hundreds of them started developing neurological problems. And they realized that it was because the vaccines were contaminated with gram-negative bacteria. Uh, and they also, they were testing both with live rabbits and with horseshoe crabs. And they realized that the horseshoe crab test was more sensitive, it was easier to use, and it was cheaper. So the Food and Drug Administration uh, passed that as the official test uh, for gram-negative bacteria. And now, of course, the horseshoe crabs have sort of become the unsung heroes of the COVID epidemic. We've all heard of uh, Anthony Fauci and Francis Collins, 
but it's really horseshoe crabs that have protected millions and millions, hundreds of millions of lives from gram-negative bacterial contamination of both the va- all the vaccines have had to be tested and also all of the, the COVID tests, you know. So whenever you're uh, swabbing your nose and, and uh, taking your little at-home test, all of that material also has to have been tested by horseshoe crab blood to make sure that it's free of pyrogens. That's so amazing from 300 million years ago to now and the blue blood of horseshoe crabs. We should say that there are ways to extract the blood from the crabs without killing them. And the way that it is usually done is that they are bled and returned to the ocean so that they can, you know, go back and do what they're what they normally do, and um, and we can keep the uh, the numbers up. We're going to get to the issues with that in just a second. But I wanted to pause here to point out the blue blood is expensive. Let's talk about how expensive it is. Absolutely, um, an individual horseshoe crab is worth about fifteen hundred dollars if you keep it alive and and use it for lysate. They are also used for bait. So if you take a horseshoe crab and chop it up and and use it for bait for scungili, if you're Italian, or eels, if you're if you're not, it's used for the bait for these two fisheries. And you know it costs about thirty cents a pound as opposed to to fifteen hundred uh, if you keep the the crab alive. And you're right. Under regular conditions, you should be able to go out, capture the crabs, bring them back into the laboratory, bleed them, and return them to the wild with no mortality. Under industrial conditions, we found that quite often the trucks wouldn't show up and the crabs would be left out in the sun, and you'd get very high mortality, up to 50% mortality. And the the companies now are admitting to about 15% mortality on average, which makes me think it's probably closer to about 30%. So now this has real meaning in all of our lives because, as you have described, this is a multi-million dollar industry. There are three major companies, this is what you have described in your book, Crab Wars, in Massachusetts, Maryland, and South Carolina. So if there is a huge collection, as there will be, because we've just talked about how often this blue blood is used, now if you're dredging them all up and bleeding them and not being careful about uh, making certain that the numbers stay up, we're in danger, or they're endangered, actually. They are now an endangered species. Yeah, that's right. And, And what's happened because of COVID uh, all the companies have ramped up their production of lysate because the, the demand is so high. But also they realize uh, that the industry may be going out of business fairly soon because there's a scientist in Singapore and she has come up with a way of using gene splicing to make uh, an artificial form of lysate. And so they'll stop using horseshoe crabs. It's it's not clear to me that the synthetic is as effective as the original. You're right. It's still more expensive to produce, and it's not quite as sensitive, and it's it's not as specific as the as the regular one. Uh, it has been accepted in the European Union. We the Food and Drug Administration hasn't accepted it here because they didn't want to switch horses in midstream in the in the middle of the pandemic. So we have about 30 years of data using the, uh, the natural form of lysate, uh, but we've only got a couple years of, of data with the, uh, with the artificial form of, of lysate. Usually I don't agree with the Food and Drug Administration, but I think they were right on this. But 
everybody knows that, um, you know, the horse is out of the barn. And uh, eventually when the when the pandemic hopefully <laughs> uh, quiets down, it looks like it's doing that. It's beginning to do that now. Then the Food and Drug Administration will accept the gene spliced form of, of, of lysate. And then the, the lysate industry will go kaput. Uh, and also the fisheries uh, for horseshoe crabs uh, will, will go into decline. Well, there's that. But there's also the fact that uh, horseshoe crabs, like many other animals, play a specific role actually in the environment. And because of their eggs, these shorebirds called red knots have been kept alive and doing what they do. And now because there's so fewer horseshoe crabs, thereby fewer eggs, there has been a huge decline in the red knots, and now they're endangered. Absolutely. The, the red knots migrate from Tierra del Fuego and the tip of South America all the way up to the Arctic Circle where they, where they lay their eggs, but they time their migration so that 80% of all the red knots in the world are on the Delaware beaches during the, the two weeks when the horseshoe crabs are laying their eggs. And then they'll eat 40 tons of horseshoe crab eggs, and that will give them the fuel to make the next hop of their migration up to the up to the Arctic Circle. And then they can start laying their eggs right away because they have all that nice fatty fuel that, that's gotten them up there. So now what's happening, because the horseshoe crabs are in decline, there aren't enough horseshoe crab eggs for them to eat. And the red knots are getting are very emaciated when they land above the Arctic Circle and they can't start uh, laying their eggs right away. Uh, so the, the numbers of, of red knots have, have uh, declined precipitously as, as well. So your book is called Crab Wars, and that is because there are wars between and about the, the crabs themselves, the impact on uh, the ecology and human health. So where are we in the, the state of crab wars at this point? Well, p- part of the reason I called it uh, Crab Wars in the beginning, my, the first edition of my book came out uh, right after 9-11. And we were looking at developing vaccine uh, for uh, anthrax because uh, because U.S. soldiers were going to be going into Iraq. And there was a concern that, that, that uh, anthrax might be used uh, as a biological weapon. And also similar concern about smallpox. And now, of course, we're in a war against the pandemic. You know, the horseshoe crabs are, are an invaluable ally in our war against the pandemic. So where are we with, I mean, because none of this is good. You're saying that if we switch to synthetic eventually, it'll probably be more costly. And yet we will have put the fisheries out of business. The numbers of horseshoe crabs will probably have gone down because they've been overfished. And the red knots are endangered. Just, I don't, I don't see a good, um, a good way out at this moment. (laughs) Um, well, uh, I, I think actually what's going to happen is uh, the, the price of the artificial form uh, of lysate is, is going to come down. And as we start using it more, we'll get more familiar with it, and it will, it will be just about as good as, as the natural form. Uh, so I, so I, think, I think those health benefits are, are, are going to even out. And then, of course, um, you know, the, the, the horseshoe crabs will recover and the red knots will recover. 
And, you know, the horseshoe crabs will have about a million years to, uh, uh, to recover. And I'm not sure we could see the, the same thing for our own species. Hmm. So what's your advice if we see the horseshoe crab on the beach? Oh, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Actually, uh, often you'll see a horseshoe crab, if you see them flipped over on their back, then they can be in trouble. But virtually once they get to, when they're little tiny eggs and little tiny uh, larval horseshoe crabs in the plankton, they're like little ice cream cones. Everybody likes to eat them. But when they get to be one or two years old, about an inch, uh, an inch in diameter, then they have that nice shell that protects them. But if they get flipped over on their back, various things like seagulls can start pecking at their uh, at their the tissue of their of their gills. So the thing to do is go out and very carefully pick them up by the side the side of the shell and flip them over and let them let them continue on their way. You don't want to pick them up by the tail. That looks like a very handy little handle to pick them up by, but it will put pressure on them and they actually might start bleeding at the at the hinge uh, where the tail is attached to the crab. But basically, from your book, you want the rest of us to know that because of horseshoe crabs, we're all blue bloods, right? <laughs> I guess that's, uh, that's, I guess you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you never thought about that, did you? <laughs> I never had thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that from you. I'll use that. <laughs> I just want my credit, Bill Sargent. <laughs> I will absolutely. <laughs> well, uh, Bill, this book was really eye-opening, so interesting, and a reminder that we're all interconnected on this planet, and it behooves us to understand everybody's role and to be appreciative um, when there can be another role. Uh, from a creature that we had no idea. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing, as we've said. So thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you. And now we know that we're all blue bloods as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> William Bill Sargent is a consultant for the Nova Science Series and the author of 27 books, including Crab Wars, a tale of horseshoe crabs, ecology, and human health. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubley and engineered by Dave Goodman. Vanessa Handy is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.